So uh, this last year, um, I, uh, I finished my seminary work as a pastor, which was a long-term goal. It was really exciting. Um, Two-year program, uh, finally finished it. And I, people ask me, what is kind of like your biggest takeaway? Like, what has it prepared you for? What are some of the things that you've learned? Um, and there were many things that I had learned uh, through kind of doing grad school and, and working to try to become a better pastor, a better leader, a uh, better understanding of scripture, all of that. Uh, but there was this book um, that, I, that I read while I was in school um, that I think was, was very like transformative for me and, and for as me as a pastor and a leader and for my kind of my hope for the church. And I wanted to start today's message with just an excerpt from this book. And uh, it's, it's kind of a, a long reading, but I, I wanted to read it because I think it'll help kind of shape where we're, we're heading this morning in this message. But the book is by a woman named Christine Pohl, and it's called Living into Community. And I've shared from this book before, but I just want to start off with these words. She says, the character of our shared life as congregations, communities, and families has the power to draw people to the kingdom or push them away. How we live together is the most persuasive sermon we'll ever preach. The beauty of loving communities does not replace the importance of the verbal proclamation of the gospel, but Jesus explicitly linked the truth of his life and message to our life together. The word who became flesh and lived among us, full of grace and truth, expects that our relationships with one another will also be characterized by grace and truth. And so for 2,000 years, Jesus' followers have been forming communities built and sustained by love, though often also fractured by sin and corruption. The desire to be part of of communities that are vibrant, caring, and faithful keeps us working at the task of building and repairing congregations. When folks enjoy being together, share celebrations, and walk through hard times with grace and love, the beauty of their shared life is deeply compelling. Human beings were made for living in community, and it is in community that we flourish and become most fully human. I love these words, this life that we share together. Although challenging, when it's lived in a way that Christ desires, it's a deeply compelling message. We're made for living in community, and it is in community that we flourish and become most fully human. We're in a series right now where we're talking about the relationships that matter most. The series is called From This Day Forward. Uh, We've been talking about marriages. We've been talking about parenting. We've been talking about family dynamics, and relationships with close friends. And the, uh, the hope is that we want to give kind of a fresh start on all of our relationships. And as Christine writes about community in this book, I feel like this is the reason why. Our shared life together, the relationships that we have, it's a deeply compelling message. It also allows us to flourish as humans. But relationships are difficult, relationships are messy, community takes time to cultivate, and it's a challenge. So much of the New Testament that was written was written with instructions on how we do life together. The one another passages. One of the reasons as a new church we take a break, this 10-minute break in the middle of our uh, gathering, is because we want to do life well together. 
We want to know what's going on in each other's life, to walk with each other. And that's not always easy. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, Paul gives us some instructions on how we live life together. And here's the text uh, I'd like to teach through today. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 18, and this is the New Living Translation. It says, Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of those who are weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. Always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. So pretty simple instructions. Always be joyful, never stop praying, and be thankful in all circumstances. Kind of three instructions. Be joyful, pray, be grateful. Be joyful always, which seems impossible. Pray continually, which seems impossible. And give thanks in all circumstances, which I don't want to do. But these are three things that Paul places in here when it comes to our life with one another and our life with God. And as I read it, one of the things that I keep coming back to is probably one of the things that's hardest for me, and it's this idea of being joyful. And if you want to know the kind of sermon that would come from this is the kind of sermon that I almost have to preach to myself, to be joyful always. What does that mean? And why is that important for our relationships with God and each other? Be joyful always. I'm not what you would call like a joyful person. Uh, you're all going to like think very poorly of me, but I, I actually don't look forward to Christmas. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I, think, I know, I know. Uh, Christmas for me, uh, I feel like Christmas is wonderful in the Christmas season, which is the day after Thanksgiving to New Year's Day. And I can celebrate it then, but I don't want to watch a Christmas movie in July. I don't like going to Home Depot and seeing Christmas trees out already in September. It's 100 degrees outside. Um, I'm just, I'm not like a Grinch. I just like, you know, not super joyful. I'm not, in, in, in fact, some of the things that I, I am not super joyful for um, maybe comes because of my, my cynicism, negativity, um, it, Again, it drives my wife crazy. Uh, but joyful always, when I hear that from Paul, I'm like, ooh. Really? I could pray continuously. I could pray to be joyful, but to be joyful always. And I want to suggest today that when it comes to the relationships that matter most, we need joy. We need joy. When it comes to our marriages, we need joy. When it comes to parenting our children, we need joy. When it comes to relating to our parents, we need joy. And I would suggest that the business of joy is a serious business. So I want to look at a couple things today. What, what it is, when it comes to joy, what it is, what it isn't, why we need it, what steals it, and what cultivates it. So when you hear the word joy, 
The first thing uh, that we could point to uh, is how it's used in its context when Paul's writing about it. What is joy? Joy comes from this Greek word. Uh, it's kairo, kairo. It means to be glad, to be joyful, to be delighted. One person says the present tense calls uh, for one to continually be in a state of happiness and well-being, something that is only possible as we surrender to the willingness of the Holy Spirit, trusting in his supernatural enablement and not relying on natural strength to pull this off. Another definition is rejoicing always. This idea of joy is a conscious attitude of contentment, hope, and happiness that comes from deliberately focusing on Christ, the eternal treasure that we have received freely from him. This idea of joy appears 74 times in the New Testament, which means there's something they're trying to get across here when they're talking about how we interact with God and each other. 74 times there's this word joy shows up. It's a fruit of the Spirit. A fruit of the Spirit. Last week we talked about this idea of meekness, how meekness is important for our relationships. But joy, a fruit of the Spirit, spirit important for our relationships. The pastor John Piper said, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the world, in the word, and in the world. What I would say what joy is, is it's a heavenly delight in what God is up to in this world. A heavenly delight of what God is up to in the world. Heavenly because it's not necessarily this emotion that comes from earth. It's something that is given as a fruit of the Spirit, evidence of God's presence in our life. Joy is this delight that comes from heaven. So what is it not? What isn't it? A couple things. One is that it's not happiness when we think of joy. We always make that distinction. Does it include happiness? Absolutely. Is it mean happiness? I would say no. Happiness is something that we pursue, experience, it comes and goes. Happiness comes from uh, this idea of happenstance that's usually based on circumstances. We can be happy and not be joyful. Joy is something that's deeper than happiness. Another thing that joy isn't is just simply satisfaction. I think if I'm satisfied in life, then, then I'm joyful. The author C.S. Lewis writes a lot about this idea of joy, and he talks about how it's different than satisfaction. In fact, he says, the idea of joy is, is not a satisfied, satisfied desire, but joy is an unsatisfied desire, a deep longing for God, a hungry pursuit of God's heart that never ends and is more satisfying than any earthly happiness. So joy isn't just happiness, and it's not just satisfaction, and I would say that joy is not simply pleasure. Joy is not just pleasure. Again, C.S. Lewis talking about how it's not pleasure says, joy is not a substitute for something like sex. Sex is very often a substitute for joy. C.S. Lewis says, I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are substitutes for joy. Joy is not based on circumstances. Joy is not something that kind of comes and goes from something that we experience here on earth. Joy is something that is from heaven. It's this heavenly delight in what God is up to in the world. It's not based on our happenstance. It's not based on 
how life is going. Joy is something much deeper. This deeper delight, this longing for God. Why we need it. The first is this, is that I think that joy, joy is powerful. It is a powerful emotion. And when you're around people who are joyful, you can sense this, this power. There's something that sustains them in the midst of difficult times, that's something that sustains them in the midst of suffering, something that sustains them through sorrow when they're feeling they're, they're not happy, and yet there's this hopeful delight in what God is doing in the world. I remember when I was uh, in college, uh, I was dating this girl that dragged me to see a movie called Monsters, Inc. <laughs> Wasn't super excited to see it. Felt like if I had kids someday, I'd like to see it. You know, it's Billy Crystal and John Goodman, an animated, an animated picture movie. I don't know if it was Pixar. I can't remember. Uh, some of you have seen Monsters, Inc. You understand the premise of it. Monsters, Inc. is kind of this story, this made-up world where there are these monsters that live in this town, and a bunch of them work for this energy plant, kind of like a power plant. And the way that they kind of harvest energy, instead of like harvesting, you know, like solar or nuclear or coal, whatever, the way they get their energy is that they enter into the realm of humans, and they go into the bedrooms of children at night, and they hide under their bed, and they scare the children, and the children scream, and they harvest the fear of the scream, and it produces energy. Kind of like a brilliant concept uh, if you've seen it, and it's hilarious. Uh, and, and as you're watching this, you see like, well, this is Monster's job, is like to go into a kid's room and hide in their closet or hide in their bed and scare them at night, and then take the energy from the fear, and they use that to like power their town. Uh, as, the, as the movie goes on, there's kind of like, you know, all this stuff happens, there's drama, there's ups and downs. Uh, they decide to close down the plant. Uh, temporarily, and the whole program gets stopped. And we know what happens what, when they're trying to figure out like what to do. At some point, they realize that they can harvest fear, but there's something more powerful than that that they can harvest. And it's the laughter of children. The laughter of children is like 10 times as powerful as the fear, as, as the scream which, you know, Billy Crystal's a funny guy. So they start going about harvesting laughter from children. So they would show up in the middle of the night and try to make the child laugh. And I remember, like, like watching this and thinking how there's, this is a funny story of how the world works, but there is something so deep here. There's something that, in my mind, switched as I, I started to remember and realize the power of laughter, so much more powerful than the power of fear. It's a simple story, maybe Pixar. But I feel like there's something much deeper going on here, and I feel like it's the same thing with joy. In Monsters, Inc., they could never have imagined something more powerful than this fearful scream, and then at some point, they stumble across something that completely changes the industry. And I think that we live this life when we're robbed of joy, and we, we, we get energy, and and, and we, we place so much of our contentment in certain things that we think are powerful, that we think are fulfilling, and then at some point we realize that we can tap into this fruit of the Spirit of joy. And it's so much more powerful than all of the other things that we drew strength from. Not because joy 
comes to us in the, in the midst of circumstances, but because there's something that comes from us from God that allows us to be joyful in whatever circumstance. It's not happiness. It's not satisfaction. It's not pleasure. It's this deep delight in life that comes from heaven. Joy is powerful, and our relationships need this. Second thing about joy, why we need it, is that joy is infectious. There's something about joy that it, it, it spreads at like this unstoppable pace. You get this when you're around children. Uh, you get this when if you have a dog and you get home from work and it's been a terrible day and everyone's mad at you and you're mad at everyone and the dog doesn't care, right? The dog shows up, it loves you. There's something joyful about that experience. There's something about joy that is infectious. When Christine Pohl was talking about communities, the kind of communities that are deeply compelling to the rest of the world, I think joy is a serious business because for the church, for God's people, when we are joyful, our witness is so much powerful in this world. And when the world thinks about the church, does it see us as joyful or fearful? Is there something compelling about how we live life in the midst of whatever circumstances that we're going through? That there's this fruit of the Spirit of joy. It's deeply compelling. And I want us to be a community that is a community of joy. There's something infectious about this when you're around the people who are joyful. Not just happy-go-lucky, but something sustained deep inside this fruit of the Spirit. I heard one writer commentating on, commentating on joy. He says this, A spirit-prompted attitude of rejoicing unlocks the whole of a believer's nature. It influences the believer's outward conduct and stimulates affections and desires. It was the exhibition of this joy amid suffering that was one of the distinctive features of the early Christian church, amazing the heathen world, and drawing many to Christ. Read that one more time. It was the exhibition of this joy amid suffering. That was one of the distinctive features of the early Christian church, amazing the heathen world and drawing many to Christ. Joy, joy is infectious. It's compelling. Joy is something that we carry with us because the presence of God is with us this thing that is deeper than happiness, this thing that is better than satisfaction, this thing that we pursue more than pleasure. Joy in our world needs this. Our marriages need this. Our parenting needs this. Our friendships need this. So what steals it? What steals our joy? First thing is, if joy is something that is not based on circumstances then one of the things that steals our joy is when we're focusing on our circumstances. And I would say, focusing on the external and not focusing on the eternal will rob our life of joy. Focusing on the external and not focusing on the eternal will rob our life of joy. We have this thing uh, that our staff does when we hear kind of like this pithy little saying, uh, you might see Tyler Ells or Tim go like this. And uh, this is one of those sayings where it's like focusing on 
the external and not focusing on the eternal keeps us from joy. The way that we got that is we were at a, uh, a leadership conference and we heard John Maxwell talking. And what's, one of the things that we realized is when you hear a good communicator, they're about to kind of give a truth about the way the world works, and they always stop with this pregnant pause, and then they deliver this line. And the pause that Maxwell delivered was talking about kind of our habits. And he said, you can't have downhill habits with uphill dreams. And the whole congregation was like, oh, that's good. <laughs> when I was thinking about joy, I was thinking... This is one of those kind of John Maxwellisms, right? What robs us of joy is when we focus on the external and not on the eternal. Joy is something that comes from God when we do not fix our eyes on God and when we focus on everything that there is around us. Our circumstances can rob us of joy. When we focus on God, though, it changes our perspective of how we travel through this life. So the first thing is focusing on the eternal, not the external. The second thing that robs us from joy is comparison. Right? This Eleanor Roosevelt's great comparison is the great thief of joy. We've heard this. Joy robs us. Joy gets robbed when we compare our lives to others. This is, I think, something that's extremely difficult for young people right now. And I, I count myself as a young person. Uh, the reason I think that comparison, especially in our day today, robs our life of joy is this little thing called social media. I've got it. I love it. I love to share my life on it. Um, and I, I don't have any like, scientific proof on this, so it may not make sense, but I feel like this is what I'm experiencing. And I can't quite put it into words yet, so this is kind of like I'm externally processing this. You can tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> I feel like in my mind, my mind exists in like three different like realms or dimensions. Hang with me. The first thing is I feel like there's like this spiritual realm. There's a spiritual dimension where my mind is communing with God. I am spending time in prayer, worshiping God. Um, you know, I journal. Um, I read God's word. There's this place that my mind goes where I feel like it is in tune with God, our creator. There's this other dimension that I live in, which is like the physical world. This is us right now. And I see you, and it's real, and it's physical. And I see my wife and kids, and this is where like, I live life. And then there's this other realm called the digital world that I live in. And this digital world is like overtaking more and more the other worlds. Again, I don't, this isn't like Plato's, you know, I, I don't, this isn't philosophical. This is like what I've experienced. Uh, and everything is turning digital, right? I mean, we, we do our banking online. We have relationships online. We have uh, social media. We, we watch sporting events online. Last night I was trying to watch the ASU game, and a very generous person in this congregation is like, here, tap into my direct TV. And I was like, yes, just for tonight, though. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, this digital world uh, consumes my mind. But the digital world is like this false, it, it, it's, all, it's, a, it's a fake reality. And, it, and it's so hard when I'm in the digital world to understand what is real and what's not, and what's accurate and what is not. And here's what I've noticed about my own emotions. When I spend a lot of time in the digital world, my interaction in the normal world is full of anxiety 
and stress and insecurity. And when I interact in the spiritual realm with God and I come back into this physical realm, I'm filled up, I'm at peace, I'm secure in who I am. And I don't know the science behind it, and it may be different from you, but what I've realized is when I spend more time in the digital world than in the prayer world, my soul feels like it is weary and thin. And in so much of the digital world is me comparing, like, why am I not traveling more? Or why am I not eating at awesome restaurants? Or what is wrong with my children? Like, I, and, and it just consumes, and it's like this digital world is like growing and more. And, and, and I'm trying to decipher, like, what is real? Comparison is a thief of joy. I think, especially for, I don't know what it's like to be more, I'm, I'm 35, so I don't know what it's like to be, most of my life has, has been pretty much I'm a digital native. And I can't quite explain it, but I know there's something that feels off. And when I spend more time in the digital world than the prayer world, it's harder to be focused and present here. I think comparison robs us of joy. I think focusing on the external and not the eternal completely robs us of joy. What cultivates it? How do we cultivate a heart of joy, a joyful heart? Not happiness, not satisfaction, but this fruit of the Spirit that comes from God. As we read through the Thessalonians passage, talking about be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. It goes on to say that we do this in Christ. In Christ. Joy is cultivated in Christ. Joy is cultivated when we commune with our Creator, with God. It's impossible to be joyful always. It's impossible to pray continually. It's impossible to give thanks in all circumstances. But in Christ, there's power. In Christ, there's something different. When we focus on the eternal, not the external, here's what happens. The pain that we experience can be redemptive. The strife that we experience in relationships, we can find peace. The chaos that we're experiencing in life, there's order that's brought into it. The things that are hurting us and sick and ill can be healed. And God, and with his kingdom, there's restoration. Does it mean that our experience is easy? That our circumstances are easy? But it means that the story is not done yet and there's something else at work that's from this otherworldly thing of heaven. And I think this is how joy works in Christ. We have this hope that there's more. I think, as C.S. Lewis said, joy is when we're unsatisfied with what we're experiencing in this world because we know that we have something that we're longing for that is eternal. We've been created to commune with God. I love what Hebrews says. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us 
and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition for sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We fix our eyes on Christ in the midst of all of our circumstances, in the midst of the things that have been done to us by other people, in the midst of the things that we've done where we know that we've failed. We fix our eyes on Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We fix our eyes on Christ so that we don't grow weary or faint. This is where joy is cultivated. Jesus, our eyes on him. I want to close with this, and we're going to take some time to reflect, but there was this old British preacher in the late 1800s who went and visited the ruins of the Middleham Castle. Goes and he sees this castle, something that's still standing after hundreds and hundreds of years. And he writes about his experience there. He writes about visiting this castle. He says, I passed beyond the outer shell, and beyond the inner defenses into the keep. And there in the innermost sanctum of the venerable pile was an old well. The castle was independent of outside supplies. If it were besieged, it had resources of water at its own heart. The changing seasons made no difference to the gracious supply. That is the purpose of the master placing the well deep within us. He wants to make us independent of external circumstances. And I thought about how this castle stood for centuries. It had this well that it drew water from. No matter who attacked it, no matter what seasons changed, no matter what was happening on the outside, the people inside were safe and supplied. And I think it's the same thing with joy. Joy is this well that comes within our heart from Christ. And no matter what experiences we go through, there's this endless supply of this life-giving thing from God. Tim's going to come back up and close us today um, with a song that I think expresses where our hope lies, where our joy comes from. And we're actually not going to take communion today. Uh, We want to do something else. Maybe you need to experience this kind of joy that is a fruit of the Spirit. And you feel like your life is joyless. And you feel like you've been focusing on all sorts of different circumstances. And maybe rightfully so, because your circumstances are really challenging. Maybe there's things that you're suffering from right now. That you're just weary. You feel like your soul is growing thin. And it's not about happiness, and it's not about satisfaction. But you need the life that comes from God, that is joyful and hopeful. This delight of heaven, that you know that God is at work in the midst of your circumstances. We're going to spend some time praying and singing. And one of the things today is, if if you would like someone to just pray for you, 
that you could experience this joy right now. We're going to have a few people in the back behind that curtain. I think Sarah will be back there, Hal and Chuck. If you would like to just have someone pray over you and say, Lord, I need joy. This endless well of life. My marriage needs it. My children need it. My parenting need it. My friendships need it. I'm going through some just challenging things. I feel wiped out. I feel attacked. Maybe today you just need someone to just pray for you. And pray this joy into your life. This endless well that is deeper than happiness, that is in touch with the eternal, that helps us navigate the external. Or if you'd like to maybe just sit in silence and, and listen, you could do that as well. Or sing these, the words of this song. Well, let me pray for us, and then when you're ready, feel free to, to move about if you need to, to stay seated, whatever you need to do. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this day. Lord, I thank you for relationships. They're hard. They could be challenging. They could be very disappointing. And yet you make us for community. Lord, I ask that you would meet with people today who feel isolated, people who feel lonely, people who have, are in the midst of, of strife relationally. Fill them with your presence, Lord. Lift up those who are in great sorrow, maybe from recent loss, maybe from disappointments. We know that you're with them. It doesn't make the situation just better or easier, Lord, but that you would give them strength. Lift up those, Lord, who eyes have just been on external things and there's a weariness that comes from that Lord you'd help us refocus, you'd redirect our attention onto you you'd fill us Lord with the life of heaven today in your son's name we pray